0: Hello world, I'm Ethan Hansen, and this is Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. This is a new type of episode I'm trying out due to popular demand on Twitter. I'm going to call it a hybrid episode. In it, I go over news and a topic with someone who's doing interesting things in quantum computing. Let me know what you think. If you've been in the quantum circles on Twitter at all, you've probably come across or at least heard of Travis Cholton, who's my guest for this episode. He's a fountain of knowledge of what's going on at IBM Quantum, so this episode is a little fairly heavy on IBM information, but we also got to talk a bit about his role on the Unitary Fund Advisory Board. Take it away, me from the past. So I have with me today Travis Shulton, who is a quantum computing applications researcher at IBM. And we're going to talk about all things IBM and announcements from IEEE Quantum. Um, Travis, welcome to the show. Thank you
1: very much for having me, Ethan. And thank you to all of your listeners for taking the time to tune in.
0: Yeah. So, okay, before we dive into the new stuff, and I know there's a lot of announcements we got to get to, um, but could you just give us a bit of your background and um, how you got into quantum computing?
1: Sure. I I would say, thinking existentially, I got into quantum (laughs) computing at age 10 when I watched a documentary on physics and thought, I want to be a physicist when I grow up. Um, Maybe more recently, I completed an undergraduate degree at the California Institute of Technology where I had the the great fortune to actually do a research project in John Preskill's research group at uh, IQIM. I don't know if it was called that at the time. And that really helped open my eyes to the possibilities of doing quantum computing and doing quantum computing research. And so when I decided to continue in that discipline for my PhD at the University of New Mexico, where I ended up focusing more on this quantum characterization, validation, and verification type mm-hmm. concepts. You know, so how do you debug quantum information processors and stuff like that? But okay. by the end of my PhD, I was noticing this kind of growing quantum computing industry and this whole ecosystem of, of companies and startups and, you know, I guess, media companies, as it were, hmm. developing around it. And I thought, that, that's really interesting. I really want to be part of that. So that's why I ended up at IBM Quantum. You know Because of our very strong historical legacy of commercializing next generation computing technologies. Hmm. And the fact that within IBM Quantum, I'm able to work on a great team of people who are thinking about how IBM Quantum's customers and clients and members of our IBM Q network can really put near-term quantum computers to commercial use. And so, again, it, it's just this really exciting challenge, and we're just at the beginning of the whole thing. And that, that's what I, to be totally honest, I'm most excited about is yeah we've got a ways to go and uh, a lot of obstacles to get there, but I'm confident we'll get through them.
0: Yeah. So is that what um, the applications part of the quantum computing applications researcher title is the finding like how how to make this useful exactly exactly
1: so you can
0: think of it as maybe
1: applied quantum computing algorithms research per hmm. se so we work with you know lots of different customers and clients and look at the kinds of business problems where having better compute would be helpful and to try and understand okay well <laughs> Where where can we go play and investigate and do research to really understand the possible benefits of quantum computers for those use cases and, yeah. and things like that?
0: Okay, and so would you say that that's more like low level, uh, or I, I would guess that that's more high level. You're playing around in Qiskit. You're not getting into Qiskit Pulse, it, or do you go across like I guess all layers of the stack?
1: I would say we are a full full stack team. Okay, it's actually it's really incredible to think about the diversity of talent on the team that I'm on, I mean, we've hired somebody say from the University of Chicago who was building super, next generation superconducting qubits. Hmm. And so that, that individual had a lot of Pulse knowledge. And then when Qiskit Pulse became available and clients started to ask, well, like, hey, what, what would VQE at the Pulse level look like? Or, or how do we actually do this error mitigation technique that you all published? Then hmm. having somebody on the team who could actually work with those customers and clients is super, super useful.
0: Okay. Very interesting. So a a bit of a pivot here um, from talking about IBM to a little bit more about uh, the Unitary Fund, which I know that you're a big part of. Um, And actually, I recently had Nathan Shema on the show. Um, If Mm -hmm. people are interested in that episode, they can go look at that. Um, And we talked more about the Unitary Fund specifically, but I guess I'm curious, uh, what's your role at Unitary Fund and what's IBM's connection there?
1: Sure. That's a a very great question, Ethan. So my role is that I sit on the advisory board of the Unitary Fund. So this advisory board consists of 15 experts in quantum computing from a diverse range of backgrounds. And all of us are really interested in kind of intentionally developing the quantum computing ecosystem. Hmm. And so what the advisory board does is we are the ones who review applications for the Unitary Fund's microgrant program. I'm sure Nathan mentioned that when he talked with you, where yeah. we offer 4K, uh, US 4K grants to applicants to do all sorts of interesting projects that grow the quantum computing ecosystem. And so the advisory board meets on a bi-weekly basis to review those applications, provide feedback, mentorship. Um, we also have some people from the Quantum Open Source Foundation mm-hmm. on the advisory board. And so there's this nice hybridization where yeah. you know they, the, the QoSF has their own programs, like a, an awesome mentorship program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we can kind of hook applicants in with the mentors from the mentorship program and stuff like that.
0: Interesting. Um, and then a bit more on IBM's role. Is IBM a, a sponsor or do you provide like technical resources? Uh, what's, the, what's the role there?
1: That's a very great question. So we began our, our formal involvement, I think it was last year in November, we we agreed to help provide some funding to the unitary fund okay. for the microgrant program, and then in addition we offer, um, I think it's priority access to some of our public machines mm. for applicants who are interested in actually running their stuff on real
0: quantum computing hardware. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that's that. I, I'm assuming that that is a very. Um, a very special and very big in-kind contribution, that priority access. Does that mean you get to like, go to the front of the line, something like that?
1: Oh, gosh. You're, you're, <laughs> you're going to make me wish that I had reviewed the documentation on the IBM Quantum Experience about this. Um, but, yeah, so people with, with priority mode are able to, to move their jobs to the front of the queue. That doesn't stop other jobs from being processed, though, right. when that person's jobs are, are not being submitted. Hmm. You know, so it, it's not the same as a kind of dedicated mode. Got it's it. more of a you know jump to the front of the line. but if somebody's running, then you have to wait for them to finish before you begin
0: hmm. so um as in your specific role on uh, unitary funds advisory board, um are you is that a large time commitment, I guess, or is that, um... More of every once in a while. I know you said you meet on a biweekly basis. I'm just, I guess, I'm curious about what what are the details there. Like, give us a peek behind the behind the curtain, behind the scenes.
1: (laughs) Well, I think one one of the advantages of having 15 people on the advisory board, all of whom are are experts in their own right, is a certain amount of distribution of work. You know, we get enough applicants on a regular basis that it's nice to have people to take the time to review them. But I'd say what I'm what I've noticed in my involvement in the Unitary Fund is I'm very interested in processes and systems, and I, I hope that we can talk a little bit about that in the context of IEEE Quantum Week. Yeah. And so, for example, some of what I've been thinking about is how do we really scale our engagement with this tremendously global quantum computing community? Hmm. You know, one thing that I always get a little bit worried about is are we are we making knowledge about the Unitary Fund available to bright, talented people who maybe don't run in our professional circles, yeah. or maybe who publish papers in uh, different sorting categories on the archive. Mm-hmm. So one, one thing that I've, I've been thinking about and, and kind of working on a little bit recently mm-hmm. is essentially just spending time every day to look through the archive and pay attention to papers that talk about quantum software. You know, mm. it could be quantum computing software, quantum simulators, it could be quantum networking software, whatever. And then we're we're starting to track, okay, so there was this new paper with this new concept. Maybe we should reach out to them and just say, hey, there's this thing called Unitary Fund. <laughs> you should apply. Uh, another thing is to think about the, the benefits of the, the academic circles that we're all connected to. right? Yeah. It's super interesting that quantum computing is moving from academia into industry and it's not you know, that's not to say it's just going to be a one way flow but right. a lot of us in the yeah. industry do have extensive connections to people in academia from you know APS, SQuints, QIP, insert your favorite quantum computing conference here mm. and so then also making those PIs and investigators aware you know cuz sometimes they might have a, a talented person at their university but because of budgetary constraints they're not able to fund that person. And so maybe right. unitary fund can help in, in, in a little bit like that. So I think a lot about those kinds of things and then sort of processes and and then also just being involved in day to day reading of applications. You know, you get this wide variety of applications talking about all different kinds of things. And most of them are outside, you know, my strict PhD research, mm. but it, it is fun to look at them and and to understand what what are people really interested in working on in this space?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And um, I know uh, Nathan, when he came on, uh, encouraged people, if you've got an interesting idea, go ahead and apply. So I'll have a link in the show notes to Unitary Fund's site so people can go over and apply. And maybe Travis will be one of the people reviewing your, your application. I, I,
1: I probably will. I, I, do feel, I do feel I should say that ever since the Unitary Fund was launched, I think the, the current numbers are that we've awarded microgrants to 30 teams across 14 countries. Wow. And that has resulted in eight completed or planned publications. It's also brought about 12 people who weren't previously in quantum computing into the field. And mm-hmm. then actually one of our projects that we funded is actually getting, has been rolled into a, a fully fledged quantum computing startup. That's
0: that's incredible. and yeah. So we're yeah, doing great work. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's also, I guess I'll, I'll give a little plug if you're wanting to sponsor the Unitary Fund uh, that's a great return on investment right there for helping out the world. It is. It is. Um, and so you said that you think you started uh, IBM with the Unitary Fund about about a year ago. Are you going to do anything special to celebrate the anniversary <laughs> coming that's up on a, it?
1: That's, that's a very good question there, Ethan. I, I think I've been heads down with trying to deal with IBM or the IEEE Quantum Week. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. And I... I <laughs> I haven't quite yet picked my head up to say, "Oh, wait, there, there's still a few more months in 2020." Uh, you know what? What can we do? Um, but that, yeah. that's a very good.
0: Point. Yeah. All right. And speaking of IEEE Quantum, um, that just wrapped up, uh, and IBM definitely had a, a big presence there. Uh, there's sort of there are two things that I really wanted to talk about. And if there's anything else you want to bring up, I'd be more than happy to. Um, sure. But the first one was uh, the IBM optimization module. And the other mm-hmm. one was CAD for quantum computers, but we'll get to that later. Okay. Um, tell, me, tell me a bit more about this optimization module.
1: Sure, so I think the right way of thinking about this is to observe that quantum computing could impact a wide variety of disciplines. And within each discipline, you already have subject matter experts who have tools that they know and love. Hmm. And so when we think about trying to infuse quantum computing into these disciplines, we can't ask these domain experts to learn basically a whole new language or a whole yeah. new programming paradigm. Right? It's just it's, it's not going to stick. <laughs> so one, one phrase which we've been using to describe making it easier for developers to get plugged into quantum computing in that regard is, quote, frictionless development, mm. end quote. And so the Qiskit optimization module is, is really an, an excellent example of that. It was released back in uh, July of this year. And what it does is it lets developers who know, for example, DOCPLEX, which is a, a language that is used for describing optimization problems in a, a programmatic kind of way, okay. it lets them take those DOCPLEX problems and actually ingest them into Qiskit, and then solve them using various solvers and tools provided by Qiskit itself. Interesting. Um, and so, and again, you can start with writing a DOCPLEX model and then convert it to, I think it's a Qiskit quadratic program object, Hmm. and then use various solvers available in Qiskit to do that solution. And then what's more also to translate that solution back into the the kind of formalism that you started with, with the DOCPlex model.
0: Interesting. And so then this is, this is specifically, and only for DOCPlex or are there other plugins, I guess? As far
1: as I'm aware, I believe it is only for DOCPLEX, but okay. I, I could be wrong on that.
0: Yeah, and does that does that cover a, uh, you said that this is one of the favorite loved um, packages, does that cover, um, you think, most people who are interested in optimization? Uh,
1: that's a very good question. I think it depends upon exactly how they're going about trying to solve optimization problems. Hmm. I mean, like, for example, you could imagine that somebody's writing Mathematica code. Right. Right. Um, so I think you what we're targeting or or what we have targeted is a very well defined software package with well defined interfaces, and and then leveraging those interfaces to do something for these these kind of nascent quantum developers.
0: Okay, and then uh, does this uh, just out of curiosity does this fit into Kiskit Air Terra Aqua or Ignis or is it sort of its own separate thing? That
1: <laughs> that is a really really great question, Ethan. I think what's what we should be thinking about more and more is the idea of Qiskit providing tools and applications and algorithms and, say, quantum circuits, vis-a-vis the Qiskit circuit library, <laughs> and that these, these tools, you know, they, they form Qiskit. I think mm. initially when Qiskit got developed, it was helpful conceptually to think about breaking it out in that kind of four-element sort of way, Yeah. but but it makes a little bit more sense, especially given the evolution in just a sheer amount of people that know about quantum computing and they understand the fact that you need to use quantum compu- you know, quantum simulators uh, or simulators of quantum computers, excuse me, or you need to be doing measurement error mitigation that moving from elements to modules makes a lot more sense.
0: Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and if people want to get started with this, I know it's it's get, so it's probably open source. Uh, where should they look for you know, tutorials or examples or uh, how to download and get started with it.
1: Well, sure. The the best place to begin in that regard is the Qiskit website, qiskit.org. Then the next thing to do would be to sign up for the IBM Quantum Experience on the IBM Cloud, aka the IQX. Mm -hmm. Because on the IQX, we provide a lot of example notebooks. Those example notebooks are synced to the latest version of Qiskit. Mm. And so then you have all of these wonderful Jupyter notebooks on the cloud.
0: Okay, very cool. Yeah. Um, is there any is there anything else that I haven't asked about the optimization module that you think is uh, interesting or important to note?
1: Not necessarily about the optimization module, but one thing I, I would like to encourage people to go check out is the most recent release of Kiskit version 0.23. Hmm. Because if you read the release notes there, you'll note that we have now launched a revamped version of the Qiskit chemistry module, and we have also introduced a gradients framework. Hmm. So again, this idea of frictionless development, and we have KISKit chemistry, mm-hmm. and with the, the latest version of this module, we're including more algorithms for, say, electronic and vibronic structure calculations, as well as maybe some primitives for higher level applications as well. And okay. then with, with gradients, like one thing that, that I've come to appreciate just reading the literature, especially as related to quantum machine learning, is optimizing parameterized quantum circuits is a, a really gnarly problem, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. you know, VQE, QAOA, quantum neural networks, whatever. And so, being able to take gradients with respect to the parameters of parameterized quantum circuits is super super important, especially when we think about this kind of you know near time compute model where you have the classical computer sending new parameters to a quantum computer, right? Mm-hmm. getting the results back, trying to compute gradients and, and updating. And so with this Qiskit gradients framework, it actually enables Qiskit developers to actually use Qiskit itself instead okay. of like <laughs> hand-coding their own you know, yeah. political gradients, finite differencing methods, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so people should definitely check out the release notes for Qiskit version 0.23 and, and go check that out.
0: Yeah, and writing it yourself is obviously a a good learning experience, but not necessarily something you want to do every time. It is, it is. And
1: that that was actually my my PhD advisor's philosophy Mm. when I was doing coding for my research was, Travis, go write it yourself just so you understand it, and then later feel free to use somebody else's tools.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, Speaking of your, your PhD, before we move on to CAD for quantum computers, it's really interesting... Um, sorry, in the back of my head, I was thinking a little bit more about how do you debug a quantum process if you can't, if you can't know what, exactly what's going on or uh, measure it uh, you know, in the middle? Right, right.
1: Well, I think the, the way to think about that is that we can always ask quantum computers to do things, and then we can get results back from them. Mm. And that we can always build models of what a quantum computer is doing. Okay. So you, right, maybe you, you write out a, a giant unitary matrix and you say, well, if I send in this input and I get back this output, you know what kind of unitary matrix describes that input-output relation? You
0: know, mm-hmm. That would
1: be a model. And so actually what my PhD research was focused on was observing that. The kind of brute force models that people build for quantum computers, uh, say state tomography, process tomography, measurement tomography, mm-hmm. those will rapidly become unwieldy because the number of parameters in the model grows exponentially with the number of qubits. Right. And so what, what statisticians do when they encounter these kinds of problems is they, they've developed techniques called model selection, hmm. which lets you, you know, maybe I have a model that has X number of parameters and I have a different model with Y number of parameters. Well, how can I... Determine which of these two models might do a better job of actually modeling the device that I'm trying to model. So they invented these kinds of techniques for for those sorts of problems. And and so my advisor and I thought about how to apply those techniques in the context of debugging quantum information processors. Interesting. And then and then actually halfway through my PhD, I heard about this thing called data science. Hmm. And I said, okay, okay, maybe maybe just in case, (laughs) uh, maybe I may become a data scientist. So I need to learn machine learning. And so then I, I sort of pestered my advisor for about a year, and, and he always came back with, Travis, you need to actually think about what a project like this could look like. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And so then we, my, I think it's my second paper asked the question, well, I, I do experiments on, on you know, quantum computers, and I get back results. And maybe instead of fitting those results to some kind of statistical model, maybe I could just use machine learning directly. Mm. And, and so now we did a small research project about trying to characterize noise in single qubit uh, quantum computers using um, using machine learning, like super super simple things like support vector machines and perceptrons, not neural okay. networks, uh, and stuff like that. Um, and then as a result of all of these things, just I I, I left with a much deeper appreciation of what's going to be necessary as we advance the state of the art in quantum computing hardware. To really be able to debug them, to get to really characterize novel kinds of errors and, and error mechanisms, such that we can you know, continue this march toward a universal fault-tolerant quantum computer.
0: Yeah, that's that's super interesting and something that I think is a, an interesting point to note that you sort of changed. Um, you started looking at a new problem. Um, I think that that sort of that flexibility. Of being able to go well, okay, well, this is how we were going to do it, and now we're going to change real fast. I think that's super valuable, Um, Hmm. and yeah, I mean, you're the one with the PhD. I I don't want to tell you what what's valuable, what's not, but I definitely appreciate that in my life. (laughs)
1: Sure, 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 sure. No, and I I guess I will say maybe from a, a career development perspective. That is one thing that I've tried to be very conscientious about ever since starting my PhD. Yeah. Is, you know, what skills do I need to develop? How could I add value? What am I good at? And
0: yeah. then
1: where do I find the teams and, and companies that would really let me me flourish in the skills and, and also let me develop new skills, which is how I ended up on this kind of application research team at IBM Quantum, which interfaces with clients, you know, which means we're talking with people who are not necessarily quantum computing domain experts, and that's a skill. Yeah, as I'm, I'm sure, right? You you've learned in the podcast, you know, people have ways of communicating, and you got to figure out how to communicate in the way that makes your message resonate with them.
0: For sure, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's move on to this last topic: um, the CAD for quantum computers. Um, I guess uh, what what is that all about? So, because my first thought when I saw this was. That it would be like too rigid to allow for good experimentation and real design. is is, mm. is that the case?
1: Well, I think maybe for some of the readers who or listeners, excuse me, who who haven't been following some of the announcements with KizKit, as part of a hardware workshop organized by uh doctors Zlatko Minov and Nick Braun mm-hmm. at IEEE Quantum Link, we announced what we're calling Project Metal which is intended to be, as you said, a kind of CAD for quantum computers. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a first-of-its-kind open-source project in that sense, where really we're trying to let scientists and engineers design superconducting quantum devices with ease. Yeah. And, and I think actually uh, sometime earlier this year, you actually had Zlatko on the podcast, and yeah. I'm sure you heard some interesting things about his work and, and maybe some of the open-source software that he'd already developed, for example, PyEPR, Mm-hmm. Which he was you know, building in, in order to help him build better you know, superconducting-based quantum computers. Hmm. Now, the purpose of the workshop was to really enable better collaborations between quantum hardware engineers and those who are building hardware and software for quantum control. And this is in the context of the importance of building this intentional community. You know, there's hmm. a lot of different people in academia, research labs, national labs, industry, etc., who are building you know next generation superconducting qubit devices and so how do we as ibm quantum foster that community and actually help move the whole industry forward using this particular quantum computing modality Hmm. and so the idea is to basically build this universal toolkit that lets you actually design a quantum chip all the way from concept to fabrication in a simple scalable and open framework
0: Hmm. okay
1: so that means that you're able to design chips by prototyping components It means you're able to actually model the electromagnetic behavior of those chips using, say, existing tools. And then you're actually able to then model the qubits themselves given that information about their electromagnetic properties. Hmm. So you can right? basically, from, from Project Metal, you can really play around with these different superconducting qubits and understand what kinds of qubits this particular chip layout might make. And then you can actually export that design to a kind of standard file that you could then send to a fabrication team in order to actually make, make it.
0: Interesting. So, yeah, um I'd like to thank you for backing me up <laughs> uh, to <laughs> make sure people knew what we were talking about. Um but yeah, that that's very interesting. So, I guess what sort of parameters are you able to play around with? Is it is it everything? Um, everything from I, I guess I, I don't even know what parameters you would you know, play I, around. You about. know
1: what I'm hearing here, Ethan, is uh, I think you need to get Zlatko back on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no. Definitely.
0: So what what I will
1: what I will say is uh, you should uh, people who are interested should go check out kisskit.org/metal. Yeah. We've made a, a special page just for that. Zlatko has a very nice, I think it's about a four-minute YouTube video hmm. talking about what metal is and and how you can use it, and then. There's also this early access program that we are launching as as part of this, again, trying to build that intentional community and to also get feedback about Metal and how we can improve it as a tool for these people. And then in addition, if you want more details, you can also check out a particular medium blog, which is entitled, What If We Had a Computer Aided Design Program for Quantum Computers?
0: Yeah. And uh, I'll have show notes to kiskit.org metal and that blog post in, um, in the show notes uh, links to those. Um, and yeah, so I guess I've got two questions regarding access. Okay. Um, so there's this, there's this early access program, um, but Kiskit is all open source. so I, what's the deal there? Uh, when will it be open source or is it already and I just can't find it? <laughs>
1: How I would think about that is metal is really designed for those people who are already building superconducting qubits. Hmm. And so maybe you're a graduate student in in an academic lab and you have this, you know, horrible, complicated Python code base that you've inherited from five years of previous PhDs. As we all
0: do. Uh, Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And you say to yourself, okay, I want to try this tool. Like I think the early access program is, is really geared for those kinds of people mm. because we want to make sure that the tool is as versatile and robust as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that, that folks will note on the, the Metal webpage there is that we have actually um, kind of experimentally tested Metal and its modeling capabilities. So there's supposed to be an upcoming paper um, by Zlatko and, and collaborators, which will oh. show extremely accurate agreement between the properties of the qubits that are derived using metal and its you know, simulators and, and emulators of the, the qubits, and then the actual hardware. Interesting. You know, so i.e. exporting that design, fabricating that design. Um, I guess I would assume, uh, probably someplace in Yorktown Heights, and then <laughs> and then um, and then actually measuring it. You know, yeah. and seeing okay, what are these properties, and how do they compare to what metal predicts they will be?
0: Yeah. And I, I suppose that's a important prerequisite that your modeling software, uh, at least somewhat accurately, models the real world. Right. Um, but that's right. definitely good to good to note um, that that's coming out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, is there anything else uh, from IEEE or from IBM recently that you you want to throw out there and talk about in these last couple minutes?
1: Sure. I think there's. I'd Say it's order three things. Okay. So we'll go maybe a little bit briefly. Yeah, I did want to also give a shout out. Maybe this is kind of self-serving to a software <laughs> workshop that I organized at IEEE Quantum Week with um, Donnie Greenberg, mm-hmm. because we've we've recognized, and you know, you'll see this in in Qiskit itself and the intentional communities that we've built around it. You know, the, the great work of, of Abe Asfaw, Brian Ingmanson, Susie Kirshner, you know, that whole team there yeah. of of trying to build out communities around software. But when we think about software for kind of applications, algorithms, and workflows. There's, there's not as much of a community there. And so we, we built this workshop to bring together speakers from 10 different organizations to discuss about 11 different packages, tools, and platforms for quantum applications, algorithms, and workflows. And then we had this really awesome keynote from Will Zhang of the Unitary Fund entitled yeah. Four Strategies for the Early Quantum Jungle. Will has very graciously put those slides up on his website. Oh, wow. And he was talking about how we should think about this ecosystem right now is like a jungle it's got all these lush opportunities it's got all of this really crazy incredible diversity, and we need to protect that and we need to help that grow and we need to help that develop and and so his keynote has some some good thoughts about how to do that and again, the idea of this workshop being let's bring these people together and also let them engage with the audience admittedly this the workshop was virtual mm which right? personally I find that a giant bummer. Like, I yeah. love in-person yeah. workshops because grabbing coffee and drinks with people is tremendous. Agreed. But at least being able to bring people together and, and learn a little bit about these software packages and, and push the ecosystem forward in that regard. Um, the other thing also relates to something that Will said at his keynote, which is this idea of kind of open source quantum hardware. Hmm. Um, he actually sort of towards, I think it was the end of his talk, he mentioned this. Uh, now, admittedly, Will did not know that Metal was about to be announced the Friday <laughs> following his Monday keynote, right?
0: Serendipitous. But,
1: uh, it's very serendipitous. It is. Um, Travis had absolutely no influence on what Will <laughs> gave his talk about, full disclosure there. Um, but I, I really, I'm intrigued by this opportunity. You know, open hardware and the pushing the boundaries of quantum computing hardware is so, so important hmm. for the future of this industry. Yeah. Because we could build all the great software that we wanted. But if we don't have the (laughs) hardware to run it, right, then what is the point? What is the point there? And and to that end, I do want to give a shout out to uh, an announcement from IBM last month about our hardware roadmap. Mm
0: -hmm. I don't
1: know if you would had a chance to read that, but I think the date is uh, September 15th, IBM Quantum Vice President Jay Gambetta posted a blog post called IBM's Roadmap for Scaling Quantum Technology, which includes essentially a vision that by the end of the decade, we can prototype a, a fault-tolerant quantum computer. Hmm. And that the way to get there is by building maybe about a 127 qubit chip next year, about a 433 qubit chip in 2022, a thousand qubit chip by 2023, and then maybe about a million qubit chip, or system, I should say. I don't, I don't, I don't think you can actually <laughs> pick a million qubits on one chip, but a million qubit system by the end of the decade.
0: Wow.
1: You know, and, and reading some of the reactions to that on Twitter and LinkedIn, I think people really appreciated that, mm-hmm. you know, especially the companies that, that aren't building hardware, having that roadmap, having that vision and saying, oh, okay, so here's where we can orient ourselves to. Yeah. You know, I think that that's a really great thing for developing this quantum jungle, as it were, is, is if we all kind of understand, well, generally, where are we trying to head? And then how can we contribute to that community and that ecosystem for doing so? You know, I think that's, that's an incredible thing. And then along with that, actually, I don't know if you noticed this, Ethan, but we've recently launched a, a hardware-centric blog called oh. The Quantum Aviary. No, I
0: did not know about this. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So um, one of our, our senior technical writer for Kiskit, Ryan Mandelbaum, he, his side hobby is that he likes to watch birds. <laughs> and it and if you read uh Jay Gambetta's post on our hardware roadmap, you'll see that we've been u- we're using bird names yep. as kind of the, the internal code names for these different generations of of chips and whatnot. Yeah. And so I think Ryan really enjoyed that. And and so we're actually gonna be launching or have launched this hardware blog called the Quantum Aviary. It's hosted at uh, thequantumaviary.blogspot.com. the quantum aviary blogspot dot com. And okay. the first post is actually about what was necessary to build our sixty-five qubit chip. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so as we as we wrap up here, um, I guess could you let me know what you think is the biggest problem currently in quantum computing, and then we'll get to some more fun stuff later. <laughs>
1: hmm. The biggest problem. Hmm. I'm inclined to say education and engagement,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and I mean education in a couple different kind of ways. So first is educating the next generation of quantum scientists, developers, engineers, you know, developing those university curricula. And then also, as I'm sure you've seen, the the National Science Foundation's Mm -hmm. initiative to push quantum into high schools and and elementary schools. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. But but then, you know, I work on this client-facing team or client-engaging team Mm -hmm. at IBM Quantum. And so then there's also this need to figure out how you help Existing professionals reskill just a little bit, right? You know, if you have, say, and I, I gave this example in a podcast I did for IEEE Quantum itself, but if we have two MBAs and one of them knows about quantum computing and the other doesn't, mm-hmm. well, who's going to be better positioned to help a, a bank or a financial services institution capitalize on this nascent technology?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Right. So, so we also have to be engaging with these um, these professionals and then also policymakers. You know, recently, I've taken a little bit of an interest in science policy and whatnot, and helping people in government understand the impact of the technology and how they can help foster and nurture that ecosystem in a very thoughtful, considerate sort of way. Mm-hmm. Like That's that's also going to be super important, given how much of a, a time horizon we have for quantum computing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I've, I've seen that education, um, both parts of that um, for myself, and I, I totally agree that um, there's more more awareness of uh, quantum computing all round would be a good thing. Um a, a wise friend of mine uh, once said that I, I think she said eighty percent of world's problems could be solved with more education.
1: <laughs> yes, I, I would agree. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh,
0: um, and so then the the more fun thing is, what do you think is the biggest promise or the most interesting thing that you're you see? Coming out of quantum computing in the next, let's say, 10 years or so.
1: Oh, you put a, a time limit on
0: it. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, <laughs>
1: I, I am very excited by this possibility of having a prototype of a fault-tolerant quantum computer mm-hmm. within a decade. That's, that would be really incredible mm-hmm. you know, to have this totally new compute paradigm actually come to life and actually be breathing and living and working as it were. I think that's really awesome. Now, if you hadn't put the, the time limit on it, one thing that I know basically nothing about but seems really cool is this intersection of quantum computing, quantum physics, and cosmology. Hmm. You know, I you know I said that I did this this research project under John Presco's group at Caltech, and, yeah. and John is a very you know a very thoughtful physicist, but he his background is actually high energy physics. He hmm. came into quantum computing from that. And and so he and and I think people like uh, Leonard Susskind and whatnot and and some others again I'm pretty ignorant about all this are mm-hmm. really trying to understand what in what ways does quantum theory actually help us understand kind of the foundational concepts of the universe? Yeah. And and like maybe somehow space time itself is emerges out of quantum mechanical behavior. Mm-hmm. Like that's really cool. <laughs> yeah
0: definitely you know
1: you know i mean like like, you know solving the world's problems is, is really cool and, and, and we definitely have to do that in commercializing quantum computing is cool and, and we should do that but that that notion of going to i think it's john presco calls it the entanglement frontier hmm. and just seeing how quantum computing and, and quantum physics could provide us with a new paradigm for studying some of the most foundational
0: problems about the universe like i dig that yeah totally Yeah. um, And so if people are interested in learning more about uh, what you're working on with Unitary Fund or IBM, uh, where can they find out more about you and that sort of stuff?
1: The best place to go would be to follow me on Twitter at Travis underscore SCH. I I tend to post a lot about my activities there.
0: Awesome. Well, Travis, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a a blast.
1: Indeed. Indeed. And thanks so very much for having me, Ethan. And Again, thank you to your listeners for making
0: the time. So if you listened to my last episode, uh, the one where I interviewed Christopher Savoy, who's my boss's boss, uh, you heard some excellent questions that I shared coming from Nelson. Um, If you haven't listened to the episode, spoilers, I guess. Um, And also, what are you doing here? Just go listen to that. Come back. Don't worry, I'll wait for you. Alright, welcome back. Or not, I don't know if you left. In any case, Nelson had some burning questions. Um, Some more burning questions now. Um, First, he said, I really enjoyed your interview with Abe Asfaw in episode 11. You asked some great questions. I can see adding energy to set a qubit to 1, but how do you take away energy and set it back to 0? So this is an excellent question that I don't really know the answer to. Um, I'm not an expert uh, on anything, period. Um, But I am especially not an expert on how you go from the software that you write in, say, Qiskit, um, and how that is translated into actually doing things on hardware. Um, In reality, for superconducting or ion-trap qubits, you aren't really adding energy, per se, to go from zero to one. Rather, you're driving the qubits as oscillators from one state to another. Um, I don't quite know how all of that works, so I'd recommend checking out Zlatko Menev's uh, Global Summer School seminar series. Uh, there's a link to the Kiskit Global Summer School page in the show notes. The next question is a follow-up to a question he asked last time, which was about measuring objects entangled with others in a superposition. That's one reason to go back and listen to the last episode, because um, I gave an answer to that, and I think that that was a very interesting question. Um, so that you have the context uh, for the question, which is, um, is the gist of the superposition that it is impossible to observe the two, the, uh, the two other objects at precisely the same time? So it's true that in practice it's very, very hard to measure anything simultaneously, um, but even in theory, measuring the latter two objects would allow you to know the state of the first, assuming they're maximally entangled. I recommended this last time, but it's good, so I'll recommend it again. Go check out quantum.country and look at quantum computing for the very curious. I really I can't recommend it enough. Um, if none of that made sense to you, don't worry. Uh, it won't make sense to me either in a couple weeks. I Just go back and listen to the episode... Um, maybe just like the last couple minutes where I go over that question to get some context, if that helps. And Nelson also sent in a correction for me. And I'm actually going to stick to my guns a bit and only issue a partial correction because I think the analogy I gave was pretty useful as is. So here's the details that Nelson sent in. So in episode one, at 32 minutes and 27 seconds, near the end of the episode, um, in your answer to your brother's question in the hot piece of metal and cold bath example, you said that, quote, the cold from out in the environment is leaking into the metal. That struck me as odd. Cold doesn't leak into anything. Heat exists. It, or heat, it exit, exits it, resulting in cold. Right. And yeah, that's 100 percent correct. Heat leaks in, but cold doesn't leak out. However, in the context of that part of the episode, I was making an analogy between information leaking both ways in a quantum system and heat slash cold leaking both ways in a classical system. I suppose a more rigorous way to say this is both systems are looking to create an equilibrium going with the flow of entropy. The heat wants to equalize both across, sorry, across both the hot and cold materials and the quantum information wants to equalize across both the qubit and the environment. Um, So yeah, totally right. Cold does not flow out, heat flows in, because heat is energy. Um, And I hope that that makes sense, and hope it makes sense why I am sticking to my guns a bit on this. Nelson also sent in some very kind words about the podcast and a suggestion. The kind words were, Dear Ethan, your podcasts are super interesting and we- very well done. Keep up the great work. And also, I'm enjoying your interview with Robert Souter. High level and right are not necessarily mutually exclusive, however. You can explain things at a high level without introducing the pl- uh, including the proofs behind it and still be right. Not sure I understand that one. Uh, thank you for the feedback, Nelson. And yes, I would totally agree. High level and right aren't mutually exclusive. Often in quantum computing, what I see is that There are lots of high-level pieces that are flat-out wrong. Um, For instance, saying that uh, a superposition is both this and that at the same time, or quantum computers can solve mazes faster because they try all the possible paths at the exact same time and then only pick the right one. Um, I don't remember the exact context that I said um, high-level and right as being opposites, um, but I I would assume it was something like that. If not, let me know. Uh, Issue another correction. (laughs) Um, And the suggestion here was that I revert back to keeping all three of the podcast episode types separate rather than doing the hybrid episodes like I have been doing. I think it might be time to put out another poll because the first one I had put out, um, it got overwhelming support for hybrid episodes. Um, And so there's a link to a new poll in the show notes. Let me know what you think um but yeah now that we've got a couple hybrid episodes out actually more than a couple we've got a handful of hybrid episodes out uh let me know do you prefer what I did in season one where it was all separate interviews basics and news or do we like doing this all together where I do some news and I try to learn something from my interview guest and we talk about the interview sort of all together um as a conversation let me know what you think So links to everything that Travis and I talked about are in the show notes as per our usual arrangement. If you would like to support me so that I can make more and better episodes, that would be much appreciated. Please support me on Anchor or Minds. Uh, links to both of those in the show notes. Well, you, or Anchor, you can find me anchor.fm slash quantum computing now. Um, I'm also going to try putting out addresses for direct crypto donations in the show notes and see what happens. If you're interested in sending me some quantum-resistant ledger or ethereum or monero or even iota Um, those first three are in the show notes if you want to send me iota they do one-time signatures so reach out to me and i'll get you an address to send that to quantum computing now is produced in partnership with the quantum the quantum daily aims to cut through the technical jargon and the overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality comprehensible content about quantum computing If you enjoy this podcast and would also like text resources, be sure to check out thequantumdaily.com, which I have linked to in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.